It demands that we tell sinners the whole truth. We will not go quietly into the night. Christian Cornerstone Podcast. Good day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of our podcast series on the study of John. Um, This, uh, unfortunately, we had to uh, jump ahead a little bit. Uh, For those of you who have been joining in with these broadcasts, uh, the last one we did was over the resurrection of Lazarus. And uh, unfortunately, uh, like I did share last week, I was in fact called back into work um, do, doing this uh, during this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the government has pretty much uh, put a red flag on at fear. And uh, so we weren't able to go over uh, a complete study. You know, everything I was really, there's a lot that we missed. Uh, it really was. And I, I'm really, I'm upset about that a little bit. Uh, there was a whole week of uh, events uh, that we, we were unable to go over with. Uh, today is the Saturday before Easter. It is the Saturday after Good Friday, which is the day in which Christ was um, crucified. So I want us to go over this. I want to give you a, a kind of a, I would say, a, a cliff notes version as far as what happened uh, that Friday morning, and which uh, led to the crucifixion Thursday night into Friday, um, Good Friday, and then we will end our study today with um, the burial of Christ, and then next week uh, we will close up the Gospel of John with the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. So. Um, we will be a little bit behind, uh, of course, because of that, uh, the un- uh, being unable to continue in our ongoing, uh, our daily study. I was, I was really hoping to, unfortunately, like I said, being called back into work has also limited how much time I do have available. So that actually brings me to the next point. If you do enjoy these broadcasts, if you feel like you're getting something out of this, um, if you're faithfully listening to these broadcasts, I know I've had a couple people contact me uh, who do not currently uh, have their own church in their local area that they are part of, but they are enjoying these broadcasts. Uh, So this essentially uh, is their church service or their sermon uh, that they're getting and uh, which I, I can I can completely relate with that I uh, after leaving I've shared this before I, you know after leaving a church I was without a church for you know almost a year and in that time uh, I was listening to podcasts by another pastor uh, and, and it was great I really enjoyed it so uh, I do understand what that can be like so my bottom line is if you if you're enjoying these if, if this is your service if this is your church service Um, or simply you just enjoy these broadcasts, you enjoy listening to these thoughts that are being uh, shared, please do consider becoming a financial subscriber to this ministry. Your financial support will be a great asset. It'll help to with the upkeep of the assets, uh, such as, you know, the the equipment that goes with uh, running uh, this ministry, uh, both hardware and software. 
um, you know, all other aspects uh, with that. So it would be greatly appreciated. You will also be in help with the foundations of this ministry, um, you know, help with the, the ongoing growth. So, um, and even so, the final thing I'd like to share on that matter before we get into this, uh, a little friendly reminder, those of you who do partner up, uh, who do subscribe to this financially to support this ministry, um, it is a membership, um, and you will be provided with membership uh, benefits. One in particular uh, that is currently being promoted is the very first book, Desperation of Doctrinal Reformation. This is my first book writing. Um, with many more to come, any any contribution, any monthly subscription of any amount, uh, and you'll get yourself a free copy um, of Doctrinal Reformation. Um, so, with that being said, as we get into this, we are going to be um, you know wrapping up more or less. We have one more week to cover uh, with this study in the Gospel of John, uh, and unfortunately today. Because of the lack of time, there is limited, I don't have the time uh, to dedicate to breaking this down completely. Uh, I, I really wish I would. So we're going to go through um, these two chapters of John chapter 18 and John chapter 19. And this deals with the arrest, the denials of Peter, uh, the trial of Christ, him before Pilate, and all the way up into being on the cross. So... Uh, there's a lot to cover, um, and I do want to make this known. We, uh, I want, you, I really do. If you're listening to these, I want you to grab a notepad, <clears throat> grab a pen, or even if you have a, um, you know, if you have your phone. I know some people, myself, I do the same thing. Uh, there's a little note, uh, note, um, note app, in which you can use on your phone. I use that occasionally, although I personally prefer paper and a pen. Um, so you can use that too, and I, I, I do want you to really look into these. Uh, I want you to take some time after this study, and I want you to go back and read, possibly even read from all four Gospels, preferably. Preferably read from all four Gospels, because we're not going to be getting onto all four today. Um, we're going to be focusing on the Gospel of John, and we're going to be... Uh, Going back in a couple different verses, there's uh, one verse in Luke and another and another two in Matthew, in which we're going to be sharing. But that's our, our main focus here is the Gospel of John. So um, you will be limited in your information, uh, unfortunately, because of that. This is you know, a Cliff Notes version. So um, I find Easter. Uh, it is Easter weekend, and I do find this. Uh, along with Christmas, I share this all the time. These are my two. One of they are they are also they are my two favorite holidays um, because of their nature. Easter is a time in which we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then Christmas itself is the birth of the Messiah, or more 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 uh, directly, the start of his mission on Earth. So, um, I do enjoy both of these holidays, but at the same time, I do hate both of these holidays. Um, I hate the pagan traditions. I hate the uh, Santa Claus. Uh, I hate the reindeer. Um, I, you know, I hate the, the everything that comes with the Christmas, tra the, the pagan traditions. Um, and, and Easter's the same way. I hate the Easter egg hunts. I mean, yes, yeah, fun for the kids. And I, uh, granted, I enjoyed it as a kid. You know, you got a couple quarters and pennies when you hunt Easter eggs. 
uh, and you know some candies in there as well. But that's not the focus of because when I was a kid, I was not a Christian. I'm not. I, I was not a believer. Uh, I I was a, a child, and my focus on Easter particularly was when is the Easter egg hunt going to happen? When am I going to hunt down these eggs filled with candy? When am I going to um, open these eggs and find a couple of quarters in there and you know tally it up and find that I have five, ten dollars? This was my focus. This was that was my focus on Easter, and I can honestly say I would not wish that on anybody. I I firmly do believe that we should, as as believers specifically for the believers, do away with these Easter egg hunts because of what they put the mindset of a child into. Yes, it's fun to do, and yes, the child itself does not completely understand things. But I, th I find it a great, I have a great fear that we are ultimately leading children into a false understanding as far as what Easter is. And especially the Easter Bunny. I, I've never really done a, an in-depth study as far as the pagan traditions in regards to Easter. But I think, I don't even know where you can get a rabbit that, you know, pops a squat and gets eggs or lays eggs that's not even it's not even possible so i find a concern with that and i i i don't like these pagan traditions um i i despise them i think they're a grotesque perversion of the christian holiday um and i do believe that the christian should not have any part in that um, and I do believe that we can find good biblical substitutes for this, perhaps even reading uh, the Gospels, the, the Gospel account of the, the death and death, crucifixion, and, well, I guess the, the arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Um, I do firmly believe that is a very important aspect in, in, in regards to it. And one of the traditions I have, I've, I've been doing this for a few years. I do this for Christmas as well. Um, and you know, there are some, obviously, some theological errors within these, um, but that's expected uh, from Hollywood. Is what I like to do on both Easter and Christmas is I like to watch these Christmas movies or Easter movies. Christmas for me, it would be watching the Nativity Story, and uh, I think overall that's how they do a pretty accurate job with that. Um, and then. Uh, with Easter itself, I enjoy watching Passion of the Christ, and I did see one error uh, in that uh, movie this year. Uh, it was rather interesting, and but uh, it, it does not stray away from the point and the purpose of the movie itself. So um, I enjoy doing that, and, and I, I guess the past two years or so, past few years, I've also adopted into Passion of the Christ. I would watch on Friday, Good Friday night. And then, uh, come Sunday, I'll watch the movie Risen. Uh, Risen is a uh, fictional movie. Of a, it's a what-if movie over the what happens uh, of a man, uh, a centurion, responsible for the care and the, the monitoring of the body of Christ. And so he's got so much time to find this body before 
the mission's over. There's a lot more to it. That's not the purpose. But anyways, those are the traditions I have. And I think it is important for us to get good biblical traditions and to adopt these because not for the sake of the tradition, but so that we can really get a, uh, use these to get a really good understanding as far as what Christ went through and what the real purpose of this celebration is. So um, that's all I have as far as the introductions goes. And if we get into this, we uh, open up our Bibles again to John chapter 18. And we'll kind of be skimming through... Uh, John chapter 19 as well. So uh, it says here, when Jesus spoke these words, uh, give me a quick moment here. I'm working on uh, sharing this uh, video here. And we are good. Okay. Should have done that a little bit earlier. But here, John chapter 18. Again, we're going to skim through this or try to anyways. But... Uh, here we have, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out to his disciples, and i got to get this up here on screen for you guys. So when he had spoken, uh, he had, uh, went down across the brook to the Kidron, where there was a garden, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, in which he uh, and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. He has been with Christ for three years, so he obviously knew where Christ would go down to pray. So it says here, it says, uh, For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having pro procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with a lantern and torches and weapons. And when Jesus, knowing all that would happen uh, to him, came forward and he said, Who do you seek? And they answered him, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground, and so they asked him, Who do you seek? He asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom he gave uh, who, who you, those who you gave me, I have not lost one. And then Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, and cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Peter said, or so Jesus said to Peter, "Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" I don't want to stop right there, real quick, because. There is actually a, a piece in which is not mentioned, uh, it's not mentioned in here that I really think is important for us to go over. So we have here, Jesus spoke these words and he went down to his disciples of the brook. He went to a garden and in this garden he, he went to pray. Judas knows the place and he procures a band. So in between the chapter one, or verse 1 and verse 2 there's a specific piece of evidence or a specific piece of information that's not in here that I really think uh, we should cover. Uh, again, I'm not going to go back to this, um, but we have in Matthew, I want you to write this down. Matthew 26 verse 39. What that has to say is this is a cry, this is a plea, this is what Christ is praying in the garden. And in this, he's asking, Father, 
If it be your will, then let this cup pass from me. This is a plea from a man, a, a God, a son of God, the, the sinless lamb. He's, he's, he's had so much time. He's had so much time to prepare. This was the mission from the very beginning, from the time of creation, from the very moment in which Christ, in which the Father, in which the, the, the entire body of the Trinity, Holy Spirit included, the entire body of the Trinity knew full well that they would in fact have to demand a sacrifice, that there would be a sacrifice. And I see this, you know, you know, knowing full well. I mean, it, it's really interesting how you can play this illustration around. And don't take this as 100%. This is just something that's flying around in my head. But at the very beginning of time, this is the illustration, you know, for the sake of confusion. At the very beginning of time, God loves Christ. The Father loves the Son so much that he says, I, you know, I love you and I want to give you something. We have such a perfect and wonderful, you know, unity with each other. And I want to give you a gift. You know what? Here's my gift. The gift I want to give you is creation itself. I want to give you a people that will worship you, that will honor you. And so creation is born. Life as we know it exists. The Father is pleased because the Son is pleased, and the Son is pleased because the Father is pleased. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's in, he has the empowerment, and he's doing the work, and he says, you know what? I am pleased. I am pleased to do this as well. It's important that we don't forget the Holy Spirit. I, I have a natural inclination to forget the Holy Spirit, but I think it's important that we do not forget him because he's got an equal part as well. But from the very beginning of time, they knew mankind would fall to sin. And they knew this, and, 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 and there's this discussion going on. And they say, how will we resolve this? Father, you're giving me such a, a, a perfect gift, but with an imperfect body. You are giving me a gift that has sin. How will we resolve this? You know what, my son? We will make them pure. We will make them righteous. We will clothe them in our own glory. And here's what we're going to do, my son. You know full well that I demand perfection. And you know full well that the, the wages of sin is in fact death. So this, this creation that I'm about to give you, they will need to be punished. They will only last for a certain amount of time. But Christ responds and he says, but father, there must be another way. No, my child, no, my son. There's no possible way that they can, they can atone for their sins. There's no way the imperfect man can, can, can make themselves perfect. We must be willing to do that. He says, Father, let me pay for their sins. If there's no other way that this can be done, if there's no other way that they can be cleansed of this, let me do this. And so the Father says, very well. 
So from the very time that everything exists, from the very time of creation, it's been decided that Christ will in fact die for the sins of the elect. And so from that moment on until the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you want to put a measurement to it, there is no measurement to it. This is from the very beginning of the cause, very beginning of the existence of God, which is eternity, to the time he chose to create, to the time of the crucifixion. To put a number on it, for our, for our human understanding, we could say 4,000 years. It is approximately 4,000 years from the crucifixion to the time of creation. Christ had 4,000 years to prepare for this. He had, he had 4,000 years to prepare to come to earth, to, to be the, the baby, the living embodiment of God, to be born of a woman, born of a virgin. And from that time, he had 30 years on earth to prepare his human nature for the death and the punishment and the wrath of God that he would have to endure. And in the garden... In the garden, he says, Father, if there's any way, and let me go back and read that real quick. This is in Matthew, I want you to write this down. Matthew 26, verse 39. So he falls on his face and he prays, he, er, he says, I, uh, and going a little further, this is after talking to his uh, disciples, uh, he, say, he prays to the Father, he says, my Father, I think that's very important that we recognize. He says, my father. I want you to underline that because we're going to get into another verse that he does not call him father. My father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other possible way that we can completely avoid this, that I don't have to die. Let's do this. So in the 4,000 years that Christ had to prepare for this crucifixion, he had to prepare for taking on the full wrath of God. There is a moment in his life that he's like, I don't know if I can do this. I, 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 I know what the wrath of my God is like. I know what this is. I, I, I've, I, I've seen what the angels do to the, to the betrayals, to the fallen in hell. And I know that is a just punishment. I know it is rightly deserved. He had 30 years to prepare for this. And these are where the tears come from with Lazarus when it says that Jesus wept. Because he knows their unbelief and he knows their future. He cries for their condemnation. This cup that Jesus is asking that we pass on is the full, the fullness, the uncensored, undiluted, the pure wrath of God that will be played out, that will be poured out on Christ himself. I am, I was thinking about this uh, the other day, or last night actually, as I was watching uh, Passion. I was thinking, I was like, you know, we talk about this uh, in in. In, in Isaiah 53, it says that he was despised and rejected for our transgressions. 
And I, I see that. I, 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 I'm convinced that from the time Christ starts his ministry, for those three years, up until the yeah, resurrection of Christ, and even further on, um, this was the wrath of God being fulfilled. Because he had people hating him. And the wrath of God really comes... Well, let me rephrase that. Uh, it, 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 it comes from him pulling away his grace. Now, when humankind falls into sin and we continue more into our sins, what that is, is that is God taking his hand off of us and releasing us to our own sinful human natures, our natural inclinations. Now, when God puts his hand over us, that is the only thing that controls us and keeps us on, you know, on good standards, is his grace alone. He is the one in control. So what I'm seeing this, in, in Christ's ministry, he is getting examples, getting samples of the wrath of God to come. He's being hated. He's being despised. He's being rejected. He's being blasphemed against. He's being accused of blasphemy. And yet here is where it comes to be because Christ knows the coming. He knows that this cup, this wrath of God is going to be uncensored, uncontrolled. He will have to deal with it all. From the time that they put him in chains to the, to the time that he dies on the cross, there is nothing but wrath. There is nothing but judgment uh, upon him. He's, he's in tears. He's, he's crying. He knows what he has to go through. Now I want to fast forward here. As I said, we don't have enough time to cover everything. But I've got more to share. and We have limited time. Um, I want us to go to uh, verse 69. John 18, verse 69. I'm sorry. Wow, I got my numbers mixed up. No. Why am I mixed up here? John chapter, oh, that's because I'm in Matthew. I was looking at my Bible uh, wrong. Okay, John, John chapter 15, not John chapter 15, John 18, verse 15 is what we're going to cover next. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since the disciples was known, uh, this, this, since that disciple uh, this was most likely known uh, as to John, as John, because John never refers to himself by name, uh, either you know the disciple in which Paul, uh, which Jesus loved, or the other disciple, as we find that found out earlier in our studies, and then here in this case, that disciple. So Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Again, this would be uh, most likely be John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside. So John is inside the court uh, with the trials about ready to take place. And Peter's standing outside because he's not personally known um, by the high priest. So the, the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who wept, watched at the door. And brought Peter in. So John is ba is not baptizing. He's uh, John is vouching for Peter. You know, can we let him in? So the servant girl, servant girl at the door, I said, spoke to the servant girl who who kept watch at the door, 
and brought Peter in. Verse 17 says, The servant girl, this very same same girl, um, at the door said to Peter, You are also one of this man's disciples, are you? So, and I think what's really being said here, this specific individual, I don't think she's really looking to accuse him. And we see, because John is going to this disciple, and he's speaking to this woman, and she, he's, he's, saying, he's basically saying, hey, you know, this guy's with me. Can we bring this man in? Can we bring him in in here, you know, that he can be with me? So the servant girl, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll go see. So she's going to this front door, and she's asking. This is basically just a confirmation of, are you, you know, is this man John telling the truth? Is this man John, is he, is he uh, are you with him? And that's essentially what I'm seeing here. So the servant girl's asking a question. Are you not one of the disciples? And Peter, he's already engulfed with fear. As far as what's happening, he, he knows that this is not good, and he knows that this is going to cause problems. And he knows that if he says, yes, I am a disciple, then he ultimately risks a suffering, a likewise death. So engulfed in this fear, he says, I am not. I am not. And now the servant and the officers have made a charcoal fire because of this, uh, because it was cold. It was a dark of, the dark of night. And they were standing warming themselves. So Peter was also standing there warming himself. He rejected the invitation to go inside. But this is just one. This is one of the denials that Peter would deal with. And he has to go a second time. This is, you know, he says, Christ tells him that, you know, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. This is number one. Number one in which he denies. Christ is questioned before the high priests. He is questions, a question about his deity. He is questioned about his mission. He is questioned about what he has done. And, and has he come to overthrow the king? And all sorts of other questions that might not be recorded here. Um, and, and he's ultimately hit. I think this is important here. I have done nothing in secret. And all he says here, I have spoken. He said they, they've asked him, you know, who are you? Are you this uh, this Jesus? Are you the, the, the Messiah? You know, what's your motives? What, what do you have? And he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews have come together. I have not said anything in secret. It's all been publicly. So why do you ask when you already know? Ask those who have heard what they have said to me. So in other words, testing, you know, ask these witnesses. I have done this openly. I have fed thousands of people. I have healed hundreds of other people. I have calmed the sea at least two times. These people know what I said. They know who I am. They know what I've done. And as he said these, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And, he, and Jesus, he says, is this how you answer the high priest? Is this how you would respond? That you, you with, a, with a form of arrogance? 
with a form of ignorance to to you know disrespect these high priests and that's essentially what you could get from this is because he's not Jesus is not answering this question he says you know if you really want to know the truth ask the people who can testify I I've clearly spoken about myself I've clearly proven it to you and these people can tell you the truth in other words this was a, a normal thing for a, a trial uh, Christ was essentially saying, if, you, if you've come to me, why, why am I standing here alone? Isn't it true that we must have witnesses that they can testify? So they do bring in witnesses. We do not have these at this point in time uh, in this uh, text. But witnesses testify. Well, he said, well, you, you know, if you tear, if you destroy, he said that he will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Uh, and, and he said, if you, don't eat my, if you don't eat my flesh, you'll have eternal life or you won't have eternal life. Um, and there's a lot of other controversies, uh, contra uh, contradictions to these teachings. And what Christ is saying is, I have plenty of witnesses. Why don't you bring them in? And so he's struck. And he's asked this question, if I've done anything wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Let me know. If I've committed offense, what offense is this? This is exactly how we were supposed to respond. And when we're disrespected like this, or when we're accused of doing some sort of wrong, we are to ask, it's like, why do you hate me so? Why do you hit me? What wrong have I committed against you? And this officer has nothing but hatred for him. The second time, Peter denies him. And he says, uh, he's asked, are you not one of the disciples? And he denied, I am not. Again, he's in fear. He's in fear for this. And ultimately, this leads to a third trial or third time in which Christ, which he will be denied. And the interesting piece here, uh, again, we've got uh, 20 minutes left. And I, I want to kind of cover the cliff notes. I really hope we had more time on this. There's so much, so much richness here. But one of the things I want us to go over with is in verse uh, 33. Asked his question before Pilate. Pilate enters his headquarters again, calling Jesus, and he said to them, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others, others say this about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, and what have you done? And he's saying, you know, essentially, you're not my king. I'm not a Jew. You're the king of the Jews. You're not my king. What have you done that they deliver you unto me? And then he comes back. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered unto the Jews. But my kingdom is not here. Then I think this is rather interesting. Again, as I was hearing this, um, I was hearing this last night. Well, I was, again, watching uh, the movie uh, Passion. But he's, he's essentially saying here that if his kingdom was of this world, he would have, that he would have fought. Because if this was his kingdom, he would be defending his kingdom. But what Christ is saying here is, this is not my kingdom, so I'm not, I don't have anything to fight for. I don't have it. This is a, you, I, you know, a king fights to preserve his kingdom. But he's not worried about the preserve it, preservation of this world because this world is not his kingdom. But 
the governments of this world uh, have their interest in fighting with force. This is their kingdom and what they do. But the Messiah's kingdom does not originate in the efforts of man, but with the Son of Man forcefully and decisively conquering sin in the lives of the people and someday conquering the evil world system. The evil world. That's this kingdom. And his second coming when he establishes his earthly kingdom. So when he overthrows this kingdom, that's when he'll that's when he'll fight. His kingdom was of no threat to the national identity of Israel, political, military identity of Rome. It exists in a spiritual dimension until the end of the age. This is a commentary from my Bible. And then here's an interesting piece. What is truth? It says, for this purpose, I was born for, the, uh, for this, and I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? He's asking a philosophical question there. What do we have? What, what, what is really true? Isn't what is true, you know, what's true for you is not what's true for me. Isn't that what we could do? We, we could say that. But I think really, Pilate has been dealing with with the, with the government officials, with the lion tongues. He's been dealing with lies so long that it's so hard for him to discern what truth really is. He's saying, I've heard so many different lies. I don't even believe truth exists anymore. People are out for themselves. He's been in Judah for 11 years. Everybody deals deceitfully and he's become numb to truth. So when Christ speaks of truth, he's asking the question, what, what are you even talking about? There's nobody who deals with truth. So then finally, he's, he's got a lot going on here, this conversation. Pilate ultimately finds no wrongdoings of this man, but to appease the crowd, he has him flogged. As we flip over here to chapter 19, he has him flogged. Uh, they, they torture him. They put a crown on his head. Hail, King of the Jews. And then finally, the piece that I want us to wrap up with is the crucifixion. I believe this is a very important piece because there's two, two phrases in which Christ is going to speak. Two phrases here in which he's going to say that is ultimately going to... They're very profound. And the first one, we don't find these here in this text... But I want to go over this uh, uh, real quick. We have the first one. We have... Forgive them. Father, forgive them. This is in Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Write this down. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You see, we often take into consideration that what Christ was doing right there was forgiving the offenders right there in that moment for what they were doing. But the sin has not been completed. The sin has not been completed, so even if he does forgive them there, 
they are still committing the sin, thus they are still guilty, and they need to get be forgiven again. And there's so much to that. I'm not gonna get. I, I'm gonna try not to get too much into that. Um, I'm right. I'm currently writing my second book, um, which deals more in depth uh, of forgiveness. And, and my hopes is ultimately to make it an exhaustive piece of forgiveness of what forgiveness is, what it's not, and also answering the questions. What about these dealing with forgiveness? So there's a lot that's going into that. And, and honestly, and again, you know, those of you who wouldn't like this book, um, well, keep up, keep up to date with what's going on. Um, and you can also get your free copy by supporting this ministry once the copy comes out. Supporting the and um, so there's a lot that's going on with this phrase. Father, forgive them. Christ is not forgiving them right there, because if he was, he would say, "Your sins are forgiven." But no, on the contrary, what he's, he's doing is he's calling out to the Father. He's calling out to the Father, forgive them. And he's essentially getting to the point where he's more of a man and less of a God. Because in this time, he, he, he does not. He is taking these sins. He too is, is imperfect. He too is sinful. And a sinful being does not have the ability, does not have the divine power to forgive sins when he too needs his sins forgiven. What Christ is ultimately doing, and he's, he's, he's giving a token of forgiveness. He's pleading to the Father, forgive them, be willing to forgive. Lord, I forgive, and I, I, if they were simply to ask, I would forgive them. They were not forgiven immediately. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, there's a quote in which John MacArthur um, shares uh, more on this. Um, and you'll see this in, uh, I believe, I want to say in the study, I don't know if it's on, uh, on YouTube, uh, in the archives, uh, but you'll find it. Um, you'll find it in this book I'm working on, and I believe it might be, let me actually look in that real quick, because I think I might have uh, put this on here. I, I don't really know for sure. I don't remember, I should say. Um, if I did put this um, in this piece on forgiveness, and, and the book that I'm working on, the, or the book that I wrote, I should say, uh, it's already finished. So uh, I don't think I did. It doesn't look like I did put this in here. So um, we will probably add that into our last, um, into the to this last book. But what this is going on with is it, when they do repent. You have the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people. And this is, this is just men. 3,000 people are being saved. 3,000 people are repenting of their sins, are being forgiven. Um, the centurion who pierces the side of Christ on the cross, he will be forgiven. And anybody else who finally repents from the time that he is praying this prayer, Father, forgive them. Any, anybody who else, from this point on, unto the future... If they repent, they will be forgiven. This is the ultimately ultimate plea. What Christ is giving is a token. He's, he's making available a token of forgiveness available to them. And so he says, Father, let this cup pass. And I, I, want, I, I tell you to underline that for a specific purpose. And he says, Father, forgive them. But this piece here, and I, I want to switch to that. Let me see if I... Let me, let me, I want to go back and read this uh, to you. In Matthew 
chapter 27. This is the last piece uh, I would like to share uh, as far as these cries. These are known as the cries from the cross. In fact, um, I would encourage you, um, I have not read this in completeness just yet, um, but I do want to encourage you. This is a good book from what I've read so far. Uh, cries from the Cross. This is by Erwin Lutzer. Uh, really good book, and he pretty much dissects these different uh, pleas in which Christ is it would Christ, which Christ is giving upon the cross. So as I flip over these millions of pages here in my Bible, uh, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse forty-six. It says here in verse uh, 46, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. I am going to butcher this, by the way. He says, In a loud voice, uh, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Thani, thani. We'll go with that. In other words, the English translation says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at that again. My God. This is the only time in which Christ refers to him as my God. He does not say my Father. He's been stripped in a spiritual nature. He's been stripped of every relationship he can possibly have of intimacy with the Father. He has taken on the sins of many, limited atonement. Uh, look that up, by the way. I think that's important to learn. Limited atonement, we're not going to discuss right now. But he, he takes upon the sins of the elect. Every sin that's ever been committed in the past, in the present, and even will be committed in the future. This is what Christ takes on. And he gets to this point. In which he's crying out to God that he's so alone. He's separated from him and sins are so great. Why have you forsaken me? And we know this because we know that the reason he has been forsaken is because he is the most filthy and he is the most disgusting, gruesome, grotesque, whatever disgusting word you can put in there. He is the living embodiment of sin, of filth, of wretchedness, of unworthiness. This, At that very moment, Christ deals it all. He experiences everything, the complete rejection of God. God turns his face away from him, essentially saying, you are so disgusting, you are so filthy, you are so unholy and sinful, I cannot even bear to look at you. My Father, why have you forsaken me? The pain is great. The wrath is, is poured out in both a physical and a spiritual way. God uses sinful mankind to play out his wrath. His death. This is the uh, last piece. Actually, we're going to have to wrap this up real quick. I want us to go up to verse uh, 38. The, um, I'm sorry, where, yes, verse 38, the, the burial of Christ. So as we fast forward this, the crucifixion, the death has finally taken place. It is finished. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he was a, he was a, uh, a secret Christian, uh, uh, to say the least, because he feared the Jews, and these obviously were the Jews who were hostile. They, he clearly did not want to be condemned or rejected from the community of any sorts. But he was a... He was a, a I lost my spot. He was a he was a he was a man who comes to uh, ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So they take the body off of the cross, they lower him down, and he came and took the body away. And Nicodemus also. This is how we know. This is one piece in which we know that Nicodemus was a a Christian as well. He he converted. In his early time, in his his time with uh, with Jesus in uh, in the cloak of night in John chapter three, he was not a believer yet. He was still in his sin. Christ says, "Is like you must be born again. Even you, Nicodemus, you need this. You don't have this right now." But here we see that Nicodemus, who had also earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe. So he's repented of his sins. He's got great respect for the Lord here. He is a Christian as well. Uh, Bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen. And spices and burial, which is custom to the Jews. There was no embalming, such as the uh, Egyptians would have done. But they just essentially... Essentially what they're doing is they're putting these spices and these, these, these... these things on the body, because as it will decay, this will um, cover up the smell, or at least try to anyways. As we know from Lazarus, who was four days dead, that didn't really do much of a good job there. But it was to you know cover up this, it was to clothe the scent of death in the, in the body, which would take place. So now in the place in which he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden there was a tomb. In which no one had yet been laid. So, because of this is a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was the, the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They laid Jesus in a tomb. Now we will actually end right there, because what we're going to be getting into, and I know that's really not much insight, uh, but I want to I want to leave you with a cliffhanger. Because next week, we're going to be discussing the resurrection. So the body was taken down. The body was dressed uh, in the proper burial spices and and wrappings that they would uh, um, do according to the, the Jewish customs. And he's now laying in a tomb. All alone. It's empty. There's no bodies there. So they laid him in the tomb and did what any other person would do. And they put the stone there and, you know, we have uh, in another text, I believe it would be Matthew, in which they, they sealed it um, with a the, with the seal of uh, Pilate's seal, I believe is what it was. And uh, to essentially confirm that this this tomb that nobody will steal the body and they did this for a specific purpose 
because Christ, you know, there was, there was rumors that Christ would be raised to life again. And, you know, they, they did not want um, the disciples, you know, adding to this conspiracy and coming in to steal the body and saying, look, the body's gone. He's been raised to life. Praise the Lord. So they sealed it to make it absolute that there's no possible way that, uh, you know, we, we know that nobody's ever raised themselves to life. So the only possible way that this conspiracy could continue is if the body has been taken um, and not found. And then they may, would obviously make up the story that he's ascended to the kingdom of heaven. Again, we'll get into that later. But the, it's sealed. The tomb is sealed for just that. To prevent anybody from bring, taking the body out and this uprising to continue. But right now, it is a Saturday Saturday afternoon. Christ currently lays dead in a tomb. His body is currently undergoing a decay from the natural elements that happens after death. And he will remain there uh, for another day. So that is all we have today. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to put them in the comments below. Get a hold of us at christiancornerstone.org or on our Facebook page at Christian Cornerstone, which is, of course, this ministry. If you're subscribed to us, you know the logo, you know what to look for. Uh, and again, two of the books I did mention, um, I did mention, which I would greatly encourage you to read, Cries from the Cross. Again, this is Christ from the Cross by Erwin Lutzer. He goes through the seven cries in which Christ cries, cries out on the cross. Um, and then uh, for those of you who would like a copy of Desperation of Doctrinal Reformation, you can get your copy by going to our website store at christiancornerstone.org um, or by becoming a financial subscriber to this ministry and receive yourself a free copy as well as free resources as they are created. Um, so and any donation of any amount, 5, 10, 20, or even more, whatever you personally prefer, that will get you your free copy of Doctrinal Reformation. So without further ado, I do wish you guys a very wonderful Easter weekend. And until next week, you guys have a wonderful weekend and God bless.